name is Melissa, and I will be your host for True Crime Asia. Every episode, I'll be walking you through one crime from one country. Not only will I discuss the case, I'll also venture to explain how it fits into conceptions and misconceptions of Asia itself. First of all, apologies for the long hiatus. I've been trying to get my life organized after a month-long trip to visit family in Asia. And before we continue, I want to shout out our new iTunes reviews from BabyJ864, CMM1913, and Wheeler Dealer. Wheeler Dealer in particular wrote a really long and generous note about the podcast, so thanks for making my day. This episode is a bit unusual. We're still going to one country in Asia, but we'll deal with three crimes instead of one. They may not seem connected at first, but together, I think you'll find that they form a prism through which we can see our selected country and its history in a different light. Foreigners call this place the last Shangri-La. Its official name, Drogyul, means the land of the Dragon King. In America, we know it as the Kingdom of Bhutan. Bhutan is a small landlocked country in the Himalayas, smack in the middle of China and India. Prior to the 2000s, it was best known as a mysterious, fiercely isolationist Buddhist kingdom. Tourists were not permitted in until 1974. Nowadays, Bhutan is best known for having negative carbon emissions, a constitutionally enforced rule of 60% forest cover, and, yes, for measuring state success in gross national happiness. How did a kingdom legislate utopia? Today, the question is more pertinent than ever. But with regards to Bhutan, it may well be that most people assume a nation of Buddhists would naturally be a peaceful one. That's the Buddhist stereotype, isn't it? And yet, one of Bhutan's best-known murder mysteries took place at the heart of one of its most sacred sites. Paro Taksang, also known as Tiger's Nest. Tiger's Nest is a monastery built over one of the 13 tiger lair caves. According to legend, a famed Buddhist master meditated there for three years, three months, three weeks, three days, and, you guessed it, three hours. Hundreds of years later, a monastery was built on that exact spot, perched dangerously on the side of the mountain 3,000 feet above a valley. 7 p.m., April 19th, 1998. Just half an hour after the sun had set, a nun living above the monastery noticed twin orange lights flickering from within the building. Tiger's nest was on fire. She screamed for the sole groundskeeper, who lived inside the monastery, but he didn't respond. The nun was unable to do anything, and when four men from the village below finally managed to reach the structure, it was too late. Even though the large doors were flung wide open on the windy mountaintop, the heat was too much for them to enter. Villager after villager showed up to help, only to witness a chunk of their history go up in flames. The Royal Bhutanese police called it murder and arson. There should only have been one person in the monastery that night, the groundskeeper, and fires were set in two different places within the building. Traces of bone were found by the groundskeeper's room, which was at the top of the stairs leading away from the monastery. 
There was no evidence of a robbery, the donations remained untouched, and the police believed that this culprit fled by climbing through trees that grew on the side of the mountain. The police announced a reward of 200 million Bhutanese ungoltrum, approximately 3 million US dollars, for any information leading to the arrest of whoever did it. Not only was murder and arson at a sacred site gruesome, the people also viewed it as a horrifying omen. Even if you aren't a spiritual person, you can still imagine how unsettling it would be to hear that a deadly crime had been committed in your country's most hallowed grounds. For a country whose image is inextricably tied with its dominant religion, this attack should have come as a shock. But sacrilegious crimes are, in fact, more common in Bhutan than you'd think. Maybe not murder or arson, but vandalism and theft of chortens. Chortens, also known as stupas and sometimes mistaken for pagodas in the West, are religious monuments. You're probably familiar with what they look like, but if you're not, they have a square foundation, a dome on top of that, and 13 layers of steps. They can be any size, from knickknacks to 50-foot structures. Each individual chorten has its own flavor. It might be adorned with jewelry, gold, painted colors, and that's up to the region and its purpose. There are eight types of chortens, and these types each represent different stages of Buddha's life. I'm gonna list them now because I'm not sure how many of you will actually go Google them later. There's the Lotus Blossom Chorten, the Chorten of Enlightenment, the Chorten of Many Doors, the Chorten of Descent from the God Realm, the Chorten of Great Miracles, the Chorten of Reconciliation, the Chorten of Complete Victory, and finally, the Chorten of Nirvana. That last one is very rarely adorned with anything. You know what? Google it. It is really interesting. Now, Chortens are sacred, but that doesn't mean they're rare. You can find them all throughout the country. Simple ones can be found next to public places, like bridges, and more ornate ones may have a guardian in a private room in a temple or monastery. Chortens are meant to appease local deities, which help the community based around the Chorten solve problems. Essentially, if you destroy a Chorten, you're dooming a whole community to bad luck. Kinda like the local deities in ancient Greece and Rome, if you remember those from middle school. Buddhists believe that destroying one has huge karmic repercussions in the next life, and in many lives after. Until 2004, in Bhutan, you could even be sentenced to death over multiple purposeful desecrations of Chortens. Vandalizing Chortens in Bhutan will still lead to life in prison now. Despite the threat of physical and spiritual punishment, some Bhutanese remain undeterred. Pull up Bhutan's official English language newspaper online, the Quinsel, and type Chorten into the search bar. Myriad crimes against them are listed. Some are straightforward, like a farmer who stole relics from 12 Chortens and was sentenced to 12 consecutive life imprisonments. Others read like a fairy tale, like a village woman spotting a desecrated Chorten following footsteps from the area to a house in the woods and waiting until two drunk men returned to confess their crime to her. In 2015, an editorial piece from the Quincel wrote, Something is really wrong. Since 1987, 
a total of 3,429 Tritens were vandalized. In the past two years, as of May, a total of 565 Tritens were vandalized or robbed. Police are seeing a drop in crime rates, but an increase in offense against statues, scriptures, and Tritens. To combat the vandalism, police proposed adding surveillance and shock sensors on a thousand Tritens. The surveillance devices don't just harm the assailant, though. They also text 10 people with an audio recording of the crime in progress. It's not just the local police force who's concerned. Over 150 temple owners and groundskeepers have offered to pay for their own CCTV to protect the Chortens on their own. In 1999, a year after the Tiger's Nest incident, researcher Richard W. Whitecross interviewed locals about what was going on. Though the Bhutanese people agreed that blaming the vandalism on outside crime rings was a nice idea, they were sure that several cases of robbery or desecration came from, quote, young, bored, and greedy farmers. They called these vandals enemies of the Dharma, Dharma being the Buddhist principle of cosmic order. What could be causing the increase of religious vandalism in Bhutan? Searching online, a number of English-language sources imply that increased access to the outside world was causing these problems. If you believe in omens, you have to believe that the unsolved fire at Tiger's Nest ushered in a world of change and destruction. The most visible thing that the late 90s ushered into Bhutan? Television and the internet. That's the sound of the response to Bhutan's very first television transmission, ever. The country was behind in technology, one of the last places to legalize television in the world. In 2003, mobile phones arrived. In 2006, independent newspaper licenses were given out. And in 2011, the internet was rolled out to all areas of the country, not just the major cities. Articles from PBS, The Guardian, Reuters, you name it, all cite horrifying examples of how television causes Bhutanese children to run amok and destroy stuff. Here's a quote from a Guardian article. Everyone is as yet too polite to say it, but, like all of us, the Dragon King underestimated the power of TV, perceiving it as a benign and controllable force, allowing it free reign, believing that his kingdom's culture was strong enough to resist its messages. But television is a portal, and in Bhutan it is systematically replacing one culture with another, skewing the notion of gross national happiness, persuading a nation of novice Buddhist consumers to become preoccupied with themselves rather than searching for their self. If you, like I did researching this episode, are starting to think, aha, the pieces are coming together, technology ruins everything, you're also a victim to knee-jerk techno-paranoia. Remember how people reacted to violent video games after Columbine? That's an extreme example of it, but an example nonetheless. This conversation around media being explicitly harmful is reductive. There's a great book called Television Histories in Asia, Issues and Contexts, with a chapter about media studies in Bhutan. 
It also serves as a reminder that we, as English-speaking consumers, have our understanding of foreign countries truly limited by our language capabilities. The book eviscerates The Guardian's article in TV in Bhutan, reminding us that in assuming Western television would have such a large impact on a small Asian country, we are assuming that Bhutanese culture is so fragile that it can be immediately overwhelmed by American culture. This very popular narrative in the English-speaking world that Bhutan is a paradise being contaminated by outside forces is imperialism in action. And we don't just see it with Bhutan either, but more on that in later episodes. While, yes, the media does impact your worldview, stating Bhutan was, in fact, a Shangri-La before it opened its borders is patronizing, at best. By saying Bhutan was peaceful before the internet, we are robbing the Bhutanese of their autonomy. That's the thing about infantilizing cultures, isn't it? You stop seeing them as full cultures, with good and bad. This brings us to the third crime of our episode, one that happened a few years before television was introduced and we could see it on the news. I'm talking about the immeasurably cruel campaign that the Bhutanese government launched against some of its people. The ethnic cleansing of the Lachampas. Like any country in the world, Bhutan's history is not untouched by violence and horror. They just didn't document it the way the West documents their history. The Lachampa people, native to southern Bhutan, were of a different ethnic origin than other Bhutanese. They were Nepali, and in the 1980s, the Bhutanese government began a campaign to oust them. Remember when I asked how a country could legislate utopia? You rarely find so-called utopias without ethnic cleansing. But you may be wondering how a Buddhist country can engage in such a violent and discriminatory practice. See, the West, Americans in particular, have this notion that Buddhist countries have it all figured out. Buddhism has become a catch-all for enlightenment. You know you've really made it when you've discovered Buddhism. But in reality, it's not the providence of New Age bookstores and Lululemon employees. Buddhism has a rich history across geographies, and that means it's no stranger to violence. It's like the death penalty, now abolished in Bhutan, but based on the idea that Buddhism is a series of karmic checks and balances. If you kill someone because their propensity for evil might be karmically worse than the single act of killing someone, it would be reasonable because you'd be tilting the scales on the side of good. But what the government did was create laws that made getting rid of Lachampa's a karmically positive thing. It made Lachampa's existence illegal. It didn't look like what Hitler did or what Pol Pot did because the Bhutanese government didn't have to kill Lachampas directly. First, they began to brand the ethnic Nepalese as illegal immigrants, though they were 100% native to the area. Then, they made the dress code of the ethnic Tibetan majority the required dress code for the country. They removed Nepali as a language of instruction in schools. Essentially, they made them foreigners in their own home, and after understandably violent protests of dissent, the Bhutanese government were given the gift of a reason to throw the Lachampas out. Many died of dysentery, died in refugee camps, died trying to find a country that would take them in. 
Back to the fire at Tiger's Nest. There were rumors that anti-nationalists may have started the flames. If they were Lachampa sympathizers, I wouldn't be surprised. I think of the way vandals destroy Tretens, frightening villagers because it threatens the health of their local community. Picture Tiger's Nest, a supersized version of a Tretens spiritual power destroyed, burning like a lighthouse in the night to signal the decline of the whole Bhutanese community. New problems become a scapegoat for the problems of the past. That's technology in Bhutan. Living in America, it prompts me to ask you, what came first? The white nationalist or Breitbart? The neo-Nazi or 4chan? The skinhead or Pepe the Frog? It sounds funny when you put it like that, but I think we all know what the answer is. So it definitely makes it easier to rob sacred sites if you can Google the location and how much your loot may be worth, that can account for the rise in Chorten-related crime, maybe. But if you do, ultimately, buy into the idea that small spiritual crimes can disrupt the balance of your country, surely you must buy into the idea that a larger spiritual crime could have instigated the smaller ones. If you set a fire in your country and smoke out a people, leaving them to choke to death and saying they died by smog and not your own hand, how big have you tipped the scales in the balance of evil? How high have you set the bar for it? How can you blame the reckless and the apathetic of your own country for forgetting the values of Buddhism when you decide secondhand genocide is justified? How can you justify your own values? The knee-jerk reaction in the West is to infantilize Buddhism, as it seems the most accessible to those who did not grow up around it. But look how even a so-called peaceful Buddhist kingdom has been built on a foundation of exclusion and hate, and built only for a population that were deemed deserving of living there. So is it working out for Bhutan? Maybe right now, in the year 2017. But a generation has not yet passed since the Lachampas were exiled Tiger's Nest burned to the ground, and the crime of desecrating Chortens began to rise exponentially. You can see from the latter that the spiritual fraud committed by the government is already taking its toll. I believe in karma. I believe you reap what you sow. And I've yet to see any country outrun a legacy of blood. True Crime Asia is created, edited, and researched by Melissa Powers. This episode was co-written with Katya Ungerman. The theme song is Lasha Kyopyanga by George Frederick Handel, performed by Bert Alink. If you like what you hear, hit subscribe and please write a review. I will shout you out next episode. You can find all of our sources at www.asianoscarbait.com slash truecrime. And join the conversation on our Facebook page. I also want to recommend a new podcast, Misconduct. Each week, Eileen and Colleen, who also happen to be related, discuss the facts, the theories, and opinions on cases ranging from mysterious disappearances to miscarriages of justice. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks.